Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and you are just in time for what we humbly believe to be one of the most interesting hours on radio. It's Growing Bolder, and what you're about to hear is an entirely new narrative on aging, one that will prove to you that age is not a disease. It's an amazing opportunity that we should be grateful for, proud to achieve, and anxious to celebrate, and that's what we're going to do right now, right here. We're going to celebrate. Right you are, Mark, and we are going to hear from one of the most amazing women in the history of women's running. She's the one that started it all. She is a legend, and she is still out there, still bringing people together and still motivating others to run. Plus, we are also going to hear from one of the most amazing voices in the field of aging. What lies ahead for all of us? What should we be looking out for? Mark Middleton, a one-on-one conversation with the amazing Ken Dykewald. It's ordinary people living extraordinary lives. It's time for Growing Bolder. Well, there's a huge demographic shift that is now occurring all across the world, a shift that has 10,000 Americans turning 70 every single day. And one of those celebrating their 70th is a guy named Ken Dykewald, the man who coined the term and developed the concept of the age wave. Yeah, very interesting fellow. In fact, back in 1973, when he was just 23, Ken became the co-director of the SAGE Project. Uh, SAGE was funded by the National Institutes of Health to invest investigate the then newly popular mind-body disciplines like yoga and meditation and biofeedback, how they might help improve the health of older adults. Fascinating stuff back then. And then when he was 27, he published his first book, which was titled Body Mind. And since then, he is the man when it comes to changing the culture of aging. I had the opportunity to speak with Ken about his recent 70th birthday and the state of the culture of aging worldwide. He is the CEO of AgeWave, a firm that he founded back in 1986 to uh, help businesses and government policymakers not only understand, but uh, more importantly, to better serve older adults. His client list includes just about half of the Fortune 500. Uh, He's a psychologist, a gerontologist, and for my money, he is the visionary, number one thought leader and influencer in the world when it comes to aging and and all things related to it. He's the best-selling author of 17 books, including Age Wave, which he wrote back in 1990 and, and may be the most quoted book ever uh, in the field of aging. His latest book is the recently published What Retirees Want, A Holistic View of Life's Third Age. I think you guys can tell I'm excited to talk to Dr. Ken Dykewald. Ken, thank you so much for your time this morning. Where are you today? I'm in the Bay Area, California. Hunker down at home. Hunker down Uh, like we all are. You know, thanks very much. I I really want to get in uh, talking about your book, but if it's okay, uh, a a broad stroke first, if you will, because I think it's important for all of us to to confront ageism. Uh, It's a very real threat to all of us, but it's easy to just talk about ageism. It, It 
really has taken someone like you that has, you know, the academic background, someone that's a great writer, someone that's a powerful speaker, and maybe more important than anything else, someone that's got the cojones to, to stand up and, and, you know, to, to speak truth to power, to confront businesses, to confront these government agencies and, and let them know the value of, uh, of the older demographic. All that said, changing culture, changing the narrative around aging is not an easy task. After being at it for 40 years, I would imagine you're maybe equally parts gratified and inspired and frustrated as well. It's taking some time, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for that great introduction uh, and great to be with you. I've been a fan of you guys and what you're doing for years now. So this to me is an honor to get some time with you today. Um, yeah, the ageism thing, you know, it's interesting. I got interested uh, a little bit about my background. I, I initially uh, grew up in New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, relatively modest beginnings. Uh, went to school thinking I was going to become a physicist. And then I took a course uh, in my junior year on the psychology of human potential, at the end of which I dropped out of college and moved to Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where I then spent the next uh, four years on and off trying to figure out the relationship between the mind and body. Um, so I didn't, I didn't wake up when I was 15 and say, oh boy, one day I'm going to be America's or one of America's you know, lead gerontologists. Uh, but as fate would have it, uh, when I was 24, 1974, I got asked to head up the first preventative health research project for the elderly in North America. And so I kind of cut my hair and took out my earrings and <laughs> traded my yoga pants for a sport jacket. And um, I began what has now been a very interesting 45-year ride in this field. And, and I got to tell you, one of the other crazy things that's happened is that I was always the youngest guy at the table. So I was a 25-year-old talking about a new image of aging. Or when I wrote you know, my first books, I was 30, 33 uh, when Body Mind came out, I was, I think, 39. And I turned 70 a few months ago during COVID. So that's a crazy thing, too. All of a sudden, to find myself not talking about those older people, mm. but being one and having to come to terms with my own ageism and my own questions about, am I going to stand tall or you know, try to convince everybody I really want to be young, which I don't. But let me answer your question. Um, so in the beginning of, of American history, in our colonial era, uh, older people were revered. They were the power figures. Uh, they owned the property. You know, it was grandpa's farm that you were living on. Uh, there was no germ theory of disease. So it was believed that if you were living a longer life, it was because maybe God wanted you around longer. And also because things moved a little slower, the more years you had, the more wisdom you accumulated. And so even if you think of the signing of our Declaration of Independence, all those guys were wearing white wigs. Uh, they weren't trying to look young. They were trying to look old mm. because that was the in thing to be old was in. And then came along the 20th century and the industrial revolution and the roaring twenties. And then when our generation came along, Mark, all of a sudden America kind of flip flopped and decided that young was cool. Young was attractive. Young was where the power was and old people, not so much. Uh, and that's become pervasive and pernicious. I mean, it's in the fact that we don't design automobiles to be comfortable for 65-year-olds. It's the fact that even though people over 50 control about 70% of all the spending in America, only 20% of the ads that you see on TV have older men and women. And they're often played as kind of goofballs or buffoons or, you know, little 
with buns on their head, the way our grandmas used to look. And so maybe it's because the average age of people working in the advertising industry is 27 and they just don't know what an older person is. Or maybe it's because too many of us who are older go to the sidelines. And um, so I think that perhaps the time has come. I've been saying this for decades, but I feel it more now than ever. A little bit like you're saying, rather than view it as a kind of a defeat of aging, uh, it's time to be bolder. It's time to be wiser. And boy, if there was ever a time that America and the world needed grown-ups and a little bit of grown-up perspective, it's now. Amen. Uh, which is, uh, I think, a great segue to your book, uh, What Retirees Want, A Holistic View of Life's Third Age. And Ken, I don't know whether you're aware of it or not. There's really no reason you should be. But uh, we started a television program uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, we won a national PBS contest to produce something that appealed to the older demographic. And what we pitched and what we won with was something called Launchpad to What's Next, which is, you know, based upon that premise that retirement is no longer what it used to be. And, you know, even though many of us want to kind of live a, a different way, very few of us want to withdraw from life. We are all anxious to to try to figure out what's next. So, uh, tell us about uh, tell us about your your book. I mean, what was what led you to write this one? What is uh, next for all of us when it comes to retirement? Yeah, so it had been over a decade since I had published a book. I sort of grew weary of books and and the publishing industry. But then, over the past decade, uh, with partnership with firms like HSBC, Ameriprise, Allianz, Merrill Lynch, Edward Jones. Uh, almost like our patrons, we dug in and did a decade's worth of fairly intense research with about 100,000 people in 20 countries. And um, we had about 70,000 hours of time spent of scientists, researchers, gerontologists, physicians, uh, behavioral scientists, economists. And what came all uh, up out of all that was sort of a more holistic view as to what this new generation is hoping for and frightened about, but also wanting this next period of their life to be. And so as I was sitting on top of all that current data and all those great bodies of material, I thought, you know, I need to turn this into a book. I need to put a book out that's not just about great places to retire or what vitamins to take if you want to live to be 100, but with a holistic view of what is it that this next stage of life is becoming. And by the way, one of the big reveals is is that even though the title of the book is What Retirees Want, by the end of the book, we sort of proclaim that retirement is obsolete and there's a whole new stage of life emerging, which we try to explain. And I'll be glad to give you a sense of it in a second. But yeah, it, what led me to do the book was I, I felt it was almost like my capstone work. You know, I felt like I need, I was looking around the field and there's a lot of great people taking a poke at these issues. And I thought, you know, I need to tell the big picture, not only for people who come in contact with a 60 or 80 year old, you know, financial advisors or travel advisors or exercise instructors, but also for older people themselves. And, le and let me give you a, what kind of sparked me to that, Mark, and I bet you've been up against the same theme that um, my kids are now 33 and 30. And um, when they were in high school, there was a huge amount of infrastructure to help give them an on-ramp to the next four years, college. So you had college counselors coming to the high schools, you know, the infamous trips you took with your kids to go visit campuses. And gee, where, where do you see yourself? In a private school, a public school? Do you want to be an engineer? Or maybe you want to join the military? I mean, there were all those discussions about the next four years. 
Yet when it comes to what used to be called retirement, nothing. <laughs> Just sort of like go on out there and have a good old time. And um, what I've also seen in my research is that last year, the average retired person in America, and there's 68 million such people, so it's not a small group. The average retiree watched 48 hours of television a week. Now, that's whatever it is, 2,800, something like minutes of TV a week. And I thought, wow, I mean, that, that sounds like a Kurt Vonnegut bad story, you know, that the entire purpose of human evolution is to grow long-lived, extraordinary men and women who do nothing much more than watch TV all day long. <laughs> so what sparked me was that I felt that, that I needed to create a book that was not just a description of what's coming, but maybe even a call to action, a motivator. And uh, I'd like to feel that, that we've done it. By the way, I should also say uh, that all of my earnings from this book are being donated to the American Society on Aging, the not-for-profit professional association that gave me a lot of nourishment and encouragement when I was a young man. So this is not a project for me about getting richer, making money. It's a project for me about it's really time we had a guidebook for this new phase of life that's emerging. We're talking with uh, Dr. Ken Dykewald, uh, who is, uh, again, for my money, the number one visionary thought leader, influencer in the field of aging. And, uh, you know, Ken, it is interesting because you you got started at this, as you noted, when you were a young man. Um, you know, I've not been at this as long as you have. And uh, truth be told, you're one of the main reasons I kind of pivoted from a mm -hmm. career in, in broadcasting to do what I'm doing. But I can remember saying that, you know, give or take 10,000 of us a day are turning 55 and then 60 and then 65. And now we're saying 10,000 a day, give or take, are turning 70, of which you're one. It, it is interesting that as you've aged, you bring a different perspective, you know, to, to what you what you do. All things considered, Ken, are, are you happier about the world that you're turning 70 in now than than the world that you would have turned 70 in when you began? Well, isn't that a complicated question in this moment in time? So yeah. I'll, I'll give you my honest answer. Um, I think growing old uh, these days is pretty, it's way better than, than it has been over the past century or two. You know, when my grandparents reached their 70th birthday, they thought it was just amazing they had survived. And they didn't have any big dreams or new ideas about going back to school or learn how to play the guitar or opening up a synagogue or a church. They were just going to kind of hold on and wait for the end to come. Um I feel like we turn 65 or 70 now and we think about, wow, there's like an entire 25, 30 year span in front of me. Uh, that's more time affluence than human beings have ever encountered. I also feel that um, we enter the stage of life and I'm a little bit of a Star Trek fan. So I don't think about it as having had 70 birthdays. I think about it as having circled the sun 70 times. Mm. And, you know, I've been through a lot, you know, not, not so, not horrible necessarily, but you know, left home, made a career, wrote books, had successes, had failures, had bankruptcies. I was with my dad the night he died. My mom died three years later in my arms. Saw my beautiful children be born. I've seen my in-laws die. And I don't know. I feel like I'm, uh, I got a lot more perspective now than I did when I was young, nor do I think young people have. I mean, to be a 30 or 40 year old, you're just kind of getting started. You're still a little wet behind the ears. And so, there's that. And every now and then I feel like I can almost see a little bud of wisdom popping up, you know, 
And uh, even though I was kind of a snarky, smart guy when I was young, wrote my very first book when I was 22, a book called Body Mind, uh, which is still in print all over the world. So that's been kind of zany. But but I didn't really have wisdom when I was a kid. And uh, I feel like there's the beginnings of that. However, I think this is a gnarly time right now to be any age. But I would have to say, and there's some research we just published last month in partnership with Edward Jones, and you're a media guy. We've just passed a billion media impressions in less than a month. Wow. Everybody's been covering it. Turns out that older people are doing better during this COVID time than younger people. They have some safety nets, Social Security and Medicare, uh, a lot of home ownership, so they're not having to pay rent or mortgage compared to young people. And they've also got a life that they can have gratitude for and, and some wisdom. Or to be 20 or 30 or 40 today, what happened to my job? What happened to my life? Who's in charge? Who's telling the truth? My kids, they're going crazy because they got to do ninth grade and fourth grade at home. And so I think being young these days would be hard. I think being older these days is powerful. However, there's a caveat. I think a lot of older people, particularly older men, have been kind of asleep at the wheel. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was speaking at a conference last fall before COVID, and the other speaker was Harrison Ford, you know, the great movie <laughs> idol. And Harrison is a, you know, an activist for the climate, and he gave a rousing speech, and he said at the end, we need to get young people all over the world planting trees to save the planet, and everybody cheered. I had a private meeting with Harrison Ford right after his talk, and uh, we'd never met before, and I kind of fawned over him, you know, Han Solo and, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, but then I said to him, Harrison, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that it's got to be the young people planting the trees? You know, we got 68 million retirees in America and nobody's ever tasked them with anything. And there's a billion retirees around the world and nobody's asking them to do anything. What if we had just a fraction, tens of millions of older people planting trees in whose shade they never sit. <laughs> That's the missing piece of the human equation right now. But older people are not meant to just be, hey, now you're done, go off and have a goofy time. It's fun to have a goofy time. But we've also got an obligation and we've got a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to young people, young people who don't look or feel or dress like we do. And then young people who've not yet been born. We are supposedly the stewards of the future. And I think that too many older people haven't stepped up to the uh, stepped up to fulfill that role. So I'm getting the, so my frustration is partly with the ages and that society relegates to older men and women to a lesser role and doesn't fully respect. But I'm also getting now that I'm a little older, a little more uppity about our own generation, about like, you know, a 1980 group of moms came together and, formed Mothers Against Drunk Driving in order to try to do away with those senseless deaths. What have older men come together to do recently? You know, I, I love this conversation. Uh, uh, 
I could not be more excited about what you said, because I also believe that we have to figure out a way to recapture, you know, some of the zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s, that our voices have gone silent. And by doing that, you know, we've allowed ourselves to basically embrace the stereotype that the media ha has cast us as people that, uh, you know, don't really care, you know, the get off my lawn kind of a guy. So, you know, I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, it's you've mentioned the pandemic a couple of times, Ken, and I think what you say is really, really interesting. Um, for the most part, uh, I'm an optimistic guy. I can go to a dark place pretty quickly, and I'm going to do that in just a second. But you know, there are have been some good things about the pandemic. I mean, it's forced us to use technology. Look at us now. Uh, telemedicine is is getting a a boost. And and I read with great interest an interview that you did recently, where you talked about your your 70th birthday, uh, totally different than what you had planned. And you know, maybe under normal circumstances, it would have been a bummer. But as it turned out. It was, you know, it was a gift to you uh, and your family. And, and in, in some ways, there are some positive social interactions that are coming from the pandemic. Um, can you share some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, first, a lot of people have categorized what's going on as uh, sheltering in place. And, and I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and my and I was born in 1950. And as crazy as it sounds, my mom and dad had a bomb shelter in our house. <laughs> and so I, I associate sheltering with like, you know, fear. I prefer to view this as a cocooning period. You know, the idea that the whole world was given kind of a time out, go to your room and think about things, you know, it's almost like we all had a near death experience. And all of a sudden, the life we have been living quite normally and great familiarity died. Uh, and then we got worried because we're older that some people we know could die or maybe we could die. And so I think it's been a time of cocooning where like a chrysalis, maybe the idea is why don't we figure out what really matters? And maybe there's some things that we've been having going on in our lives, too much time on our technology and not enough real caring and not enough real purpose. And maybe it's time we were thinking about that and coming out with more of the better showing and more of the better going on. So, for example, as you say, I think families have grown closer together, not just my family. I've seen all the research being done that whether it's through kooky Zoom calls or telling your kids you love them or just treasuring time with grandchildren. I think one of the silver linings has been a greater realization that what matters more than stuff are experiences. And the best experiences with people you care about. Another dimension of the silver lining is, is that we have come to realize that we need to be not just youthful, but useful. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing to be youthful. We all like that. You know, we don't want to be hurting and suffering and elderly seeming, you know, although I do like the word elder quite a lot. But how do we be more? useful to our families, to our neighbors, to, to kids across town who may be struggling because their mom and dads are out of work. But on top of that, I think we got to learn how to catch up. You know, I hear a lot of older men and women be moaning, oh, society has moved them to the sidelines. And you know what? I think a lot of people, when they get older, they move themselves to the sidelines. You know, if you don't know why Billie Eilish is so popular, if you don't get what the fascination <laughs> is with Kanye West, if you don't appreciate the production values that are manifesting on TikTok, forget about this. It started with teenagers. You're seeing people on a daily basis be able to produce and create little 30-second movies 
in a million years, you never imagined that would happen. If you don't understand what the heartache is to be an 18-year-old and be told you can't go to college because we can't afford it, and you got to stay in your room and learn community college that way, I think too many older people are stuck back in the day. And they just want to tell you about Woodstock and they want to tell you about, you know, back when they were young. And that's fascinating. You know, I got those stories, too. But I think we need to become current. We need to learn how to make technology work for us. We need to understand how to communicate with young people through the medium they are used to. And I think we need to be more empathetic as elders in order to not make ourselves irrelevant. Up next, more from Ken Dykwald and Mark Middleton as we continue to discuss the age wave and Mark surprises Ken with a very special honor. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by our partners at Florida Blue Medicare. It's important to know what's covered, so together we've created a guide that makes Medicare easy to understand. More information at growingbolder.com slash guide. Growing Boulder TV is back for its sixth season on public television, and it is bolder than ever. All new episodes are airing weekly on WUCF-TV, Saturday mornings at 9.30. Have right prejudice, leave rip down all hate I scream. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer, and we continue now with Mark Middleton's conversation with Ken Dykwald, one of the most influential experts in the world on the age wave and the culture of aging. You know, I mentioned a while ago I could go to a dark place, so so let, let me just go there. You know, it, it's, way, it, not, it's not like happy twenty four seven during this period in history. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because I'm like you, you know, you, you find yourself talking to older people trying to help them understand that the boundaries of possibility have been totally, you know, redrawn and that more is possible if we will only allow ourselves to think that. But, you know, I was asked a while ago by a, a healthcare organization, what can we do about the frail elderly? And I've come to believe, and, and this is the dark place that, uh, you know, if we really want to slow the onslaught of frail elderly, uh, if we want to flatten the curve, of the frail elderly, we got to start talking to younger people. Uh, you know, we, we've got to get, convince people in their 20s and 30s and 40s to modify their lifestyle because it's almost, and, and this is the dark place, I think it's almost too late. I talk to a lot of people and I say, you know, it's never too late. It's never too late. But but candidly, sometimes when I look out there, I, I'm thinking to myself, except for you and you and you and you and you, because you can just see that. Um, so, so in a way, if we want to change uh, the way we age, we got to start changing the way younger people think about aging. Don't you agree? <laughs> yeah, and I got, but I got two different themes that you 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 make me think about. Um, first of all, uh, there's lifespan. The average lifespan, life expectancy, is another way it's called in America right now is about seventy nine, and it, that jumped up from forty seven at the beginning of the twentieth century. So that's a pretty big leap. But by the way, we're only 33rd in the world with regard to life expectancy. Mm. There's lots of countries. Canada lives four years longer than we do. Japan, five years. I mean, there's countries all over the world, more modestly resourced, that do far better at living long lives than we do. But just as important, there's health span. We don't have a very good health span in the Americas. 
in, in, in particularly the U.S. So we live this many years, which is middling. But then even a worse thing is that we spend the last 10 of those years in decline and sometimes with pain, suffering, frailty. Now, some of that is something that you could do nothing about. It's your genetics or you got hit with a bad infection or you're vulnerable to certain conditions. However, I have been stunned over the course of my life to see the percentage of older men and women who do not eat healthy, who do not exercise, who do not practice meditation or mindfulness, or who do not engage in creative activities, which we know is one of the ways to push back the likelihood of cognitive loss. And so if you're going to live 90 or 100 years, but you're going to spend the last 20 of them in a really unhappy state, that's not smart. So point one, I think that it's, and we can blame the government, we can blame the healthcare system, doctors, and I do, I mean, but I also, some of that responsibility has got to fall on us. You know, so, so for example, let's take a word that you'll be familiar with. I'm sure many of you have never heard of sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. What's sarcopenia? Well, as you get older, your muscles lose their tone. It's just what happens in the aging body. So if you want to be toned and fit, I know you're a master swimmer. You got to work harder. You know, if you want to burn weight because your metabolism slows down as you age, you got to work out more. So if you're doing the same things you did when you're 30, you're going to be weak and you're more likely to fall. A third of the elderly fall each year. And that's partly because that's maybe their slippery surfaces. It's also because we don't work harder to be fit and well, and we have to. The second thing I want to say is that if you're going to wait until you're 78 to say, now I'm going to eat a healthy diet. Well, that's good. That, that's better than not saying it. But far better that when you're 15 or 20 or 30, you begin to create a trajectory yourself. It's like science fiction where you say, I'm going to envision a hundred year old version of me that's wise, that's fit, that's contributory, and that has reinvented him or herself again and again and again, because I don't want to just be a stale used to be. I'll give you an example. A few years back, I was asked by CNN to provide commentary when John Glenn announced he was going up at the space at 77. And I knew Glenn. I testified beside him in Washington. He was a tough guy. And here, this former astronaut, Senator, 77 was going to be going up into space. And before I commented on it for CNN, I watched Glenn in his first interviews. And a lot of the young reporters were doing, uh, wow, aren't you a little old for this? And shouldn't you be puttering around the golf course? And don't you think, uh, what happens if you have to go to the potty? And it was so disrespectful. And Glenn turned to these young reporters and he says, hey, just because I'll be 77 doesn't mean I still don't have dreams. Amen. And I heard that and I thought, wow, uh, I think we think that when you're young, you have hopes and dreams and then you either fulfill them or you don't. But then you turn 60 or 70 and it's, I think Glenn was given a shout out to the future that if you're 62 and you've never played a musical instrument, you can learn. And it doesn't mean you got to perform at Carnegie Hall. You might just enjoy it and do it. If you've never written a book of poems or a memoir, give it a shot. If you've never worked out at the gym or tried Pilates or yoga, it's not too late. If you've never decided to volunteer, listen to this. Last year, among our 68 million retirees, only 23% of them volunteered at all. Mm. And the average elder volunteer gave two and a half hours a week. 
which is fine. But that means that the average retiree in America gives about 20 minutes of volunteer time a week. Hey, I'm not saying you ought to be a candy striper, but if you, or, you know, or paint a barn or something, you know, I've done that. We've all done those <laughs> kinds of volunteer things. But hey, if you've been a marketer, maybe you could teach young people how to market. If you've been a school teacher, maybe you could teach kids in the inner city how to be effective communicators. If you've been a banker, an accountant, man, there's a lot about learning money responsibility and discipline that we could all benefit from. So the big picture, and again, it's all covered in, in our book, What Retirees Want, is that the, the task and the opportunity of being an elder in this moment in history gives you more time than you've ever had, more wisdom than humans have ever experienced, but perhaps more opportunity to not only enjoy oneself, but to give back. And I think that that's, we're, on, we're in that swirl right now. And with our generation, with the boomer generation, you know, we've always been a little bit schizophrenic. On the one hand, we've been very cause-oriented. We, you know, peace protests and civil rights protests. On the other hand, we're very self-indulgent. So the question is, in our maturity, in our elderhood, are we going to just me, me, me? Or are we going to do a lot of me, me, me? but maybe a lot more us, us, us. And I think that's partly why I want to be on with you. I mean, that's a lot of what your organization and your programs and your messaging has been trying to activate in people. So I'm glad to be on your team. Well, and we're thrilled to help spread your message because, I mean, you've hit on two big points. As we age, it's it's less about things and more about experience. And and as we age, I think we don't realize this in, until we begin to age. We truly are more purpose-driven th- than anything else. That's where we, we, we get our excitement. You know, folks, the book is called What Retirees Want, A Holistic View of Life's Third Age. Uh, his website is agewave.com. Before I let you go, Kent, uh, two more things. One, very quickly, I understand you're finishing uh, your memoir, uh, and, and I, I won't ask you to reveal too much about it, but almost always when I have the opportunity to talk to somebody of your stature, I, I feel compelled to say, you know, what can we learn about life from you? What's the moral of your story? I mean, can you share with us a, a Ken Dykewald takeaway that, that that might help us the rest of today? Well, I don't I don't know that I'm such a great role model, but um, you'd have to ask my kids. But I'll, I'll take a shot at the answer. I'd say. Um, take really great care of your body. Uh, I'd say be curious, you know, practice radical curiosity that uh, third, uh, be open to reinventing yourself. Fourth, save your money because you don't want to wind up being a 60 or an 80 or 90 year old being a burden on your family. And I've heard people say that all over the world and that's not going to happen by magic. It's going to happen by being a little more frugal and thoughtful about finances. And last, I'd say that um, Many of us established our purpose when we were 18 in college and maybe drunk or stoned or something. And we decided, hey, I ought to be a dentist or I'd like to be a school teacher. And we spent the rest of our life doing what some 18 year old version of ourselves thought would be cool. I think that a key part of growing up and living in this with this longevity bonus is finding your new purpose is thinking, okay, who do I want to be now? What do I want to work on now? How can I improve myself? 
Dr. Ken Dykwald, when you're ready to, uh, to stir the pot, if you will, to challenge people of our age to get out there and make a difference, please consider me part of your team. Uh, and finally, folks, this is a guy who has won every major award that there is in the aging field and beyond. So, Ken, uh, at the risk of embarrassing myself, um, I'm going to do something I've never done before, uh, and that is we're going to present uh, Dr. Ken Dykwald oh. <laughs> uh, with a Boldy Award, which uh, represents that we are all in this together. Uh, oh. We are responsible for lifting one another up. Ken, it's a it's a very cool piece of, of art glass. It will be it. in the mail uh, to you tomorrow, as long as we can oh. get your address. And and do me one favor, if you will, take a picture of yourself with it and uh, and send it to me so we can share it with with the audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And keep up the great work. And I'd love to be back on your show anytime you got some time to fill. Amen, brother. We will certainly do it. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and for all you do. Up next, a rare interview with the queen of the women's running movement. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Hi, I'm Bill Schaefer. Did you decide to try to cut down on sugar? You get rid of the ice cream, cookies, snacks, drinks, desserts, and you feel like you did a good job until you realize you're still eating more sugar than you ever thought. According to U.S. dietary guidelines, we should not have more than about 10 teaspoons of added sugar a day. Well, get this, most of us have about 17, and that's way too much. Added sugar leads to obesity and type 2 diabetes. Of all the people in this country over 65, half have pre-diabetes. And if that isn't motivation enough, here are five more pretty good reasons to cut back, all from our friends at Florida Blue Medicare. First, sugar takes you down the path to heart disease. It can clog your arteries, and it can even be more damaging than cholesterol. Second, high blood sugar has been linked to cognitive decline, memory impairment, even dementia. Third, it can lead to nerve damage that affects your joints and your ability to get around. Fourth, it can cause depression and anxiety because it affects your brain chemistry in much the same way that certain drugs do. And finally, high blood sugar can increase your chances of sexual dysfunction. So the big question is, how are you supposed to cut back? And the good news is you don't have to do it all at once. In fact, it's better if you do it a little bit at a time. Get in the habit of checking labels on the foods you buy. But you got to watch out. It's not as easy as it sounds. Food makers hide sugar by calling it something different. Things like agave syrup, beet sugar, or turbinado. If that's on the label, that's sugar. Don't be fooled. Be suspicious of ingredients you don't know. We all need to learn to be sugar detectives. Also, get yourself to slowly stop adding sugar to coffee, tea, or cereal 
And that doesn't mean you have to cut out the flavor. In fact, instead of sugar, try cinnamon in your tea or applesauce in your baked goods or vanilla in your food. Simply reducing added sugars can make a huge difference in your health today and into the future. More information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. You know, one of the most important things that any of us can do is is to simply give back to society, to our community, to our friends, to our family. Giving back is expressing gratitude for the opportunities that we've had, and it's paying it forward. It's something that we all need to do, whether you've lived a quiet life or happened to be a living legend. And there was a time not so long ago where very few women chose running for fitness. Can you believe it? That changed in 1984 when Joan Benoit won five gold medals at the first ever women's marathon at the Olympic Games. Not only did she prove that women could run, she made women believe they should. She went on to become the queen of the women's running revolution, still spreading inspiration. The greatest women's marathon runner in U.S. history, still running, still drawing crowds, and still displaying the courage it takes to seek out challenges, set goals, and not just beat them, but smash them. It was 1979 when she went from a nobody to a somebody, winning the Boston Marathon and breaking the previous record by eight full minutes. And that was just the beginning. She'd win it again in 83, and in 84 ran into the history books, winning gold in the first ever women's marathon at the Olympics. But Joan is just as much a legend for what she's done since, setting a record at the age of 50 at the U.S. Olympic trials, and at the age of 60... Forty years after that first Boston Marathon, she ran it again and finished within 30 minutes of her original record-setting time. I don't have any secrets. I'm just passionate about what I do, and I love to run, and I love to be outdoors, and love to set goals for myself, and people can grab onto that and be inspired, then great. Today, she is an inspiration, not just for what she's done, but for what she's doing now for others. I promised myself after the Olympics in 84 that I'd give back to a community and a sport that have given so much to me, and I've tried to live by that ever since. And that's because she feels she has something important in common with runners at every level. I think when you have something in your life that you're passionate about and is easy to access, Uh, It just becomes part of your life and part of who you are. And, you know, passion is at the bottom of everything I do. Oh, you're supposed to be running, (laughs) not taking photos. She says her passion now is as strong as it ever was, but she has had to learn the growing importance of patience. Well, I've definitely slowed down, and I've definitely dealt with my share of injuries. And I've learned to be a bit more patient than... I was in my earlier years, and patience isn't always easy, but, uh, you know, it's an attribute that's necessary if, if your heart's in the game. Everywhere she goes, she's asked about the Olympics and those great marathons of the past, and while she doesn't mind looking back, she says she mostly looks forward. Well, history is history. I mean, the future has so much to offer, I think, and uh, to be able to have the desire to set goals and to keep yourself moving forward uh, 
is, I think, um, necessary for everyone. There's so many different chapters in your story as to who you are. It's hard to define you. I don't even know who I am. <laughs> you know, every day is different, and I, I, you know, I just, I just have passion. Try to live a balanced and full life, and uh, you know, I, I'll rest when I'm dead, so to speak. <laughs> and that's her advice for the rest of us. Just look forward. Live each day like it's your last. You love a challenge. Is getting older a challenge? No. Life has a beginning and an end, and, you know, there is no finish line right now in my life, and when it's there, it's there. Well, there's some pretty good advice. Push that finish line back in your life as far as you can, and you do it by making your health and your fitness a priority. There's something you can do to make yourself stronger, and it's up to each one of us to find the motivation to do it. And Mark... How is that possible that 40 years after her first Boston Marathon, in her 60s, her time was within 30 minutes of where it was when she was barely in her 20s? She is expanding the boundaries of what's possible for all of us. So It's amazing. And yes, she's not only physically strong, she's even stronger mentally because as we age, that's pretty much what it takes. You know, long ago, she did make a promise to herself that she would give back to the community. And that's exactly what she's been doing. And Bill, you did a great interview with her. And, and, you know, it seemed to me that she by nature is an introvert. Uh, She doesn't want to put herself out there. But because she made that pledge to give back, uh, she still has the same passion for doing that. Uh, And that passion is now directed at making a difference for everybody else in her community and beyond. Up next, On My Mind with Mark Middleton. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Mark Middleton, and what's on my mind today is something that's pretty much on my mind to some extent every day, and that's the power of passion. That message is reinforced every time that we talk to someone like Ken Dykewald. Every time we look at new research on active longevity, and most importantly, every time that we talk to anyone in their 80s, their 90s, or their 100s that has an enviable quality of life. You know, we're asked often, what if I don't have a passion that makes me want to get out of bed every morning? Well, my answer is always that you have it, you just haven't found it. Some people, yes, are lucky. They find theirs early on, and it sustains them their entire life. Some people, sadly, never find their passion. So what can you do? Well, here's three easy steps. Number one, think back to your youth and make a list of all the things you enjoyed doing or were unable to do for whatever reason. 
Now make another list of all the things you're even remotely curious about now. Maybe you thought about starting a blog, launching an online store, volunteering to mentor children, fostering dogs, going back to school, learning to paint, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just write them all down. The process of compiling the two lists will automatically open you up to suggestion. You'll become aware of things you wouldn't normally pay attention to. So look at both lists every day for a few days, the things you enjoy doing as a child and the things you're curious about now. One of those things will begin to call to you. When something from your list begins to find its way into your thoughts, take action. Don't just think about it. Don't just talk about it. Educate yourself about it. Google it. Find blogs about it. Sign up for an online course about it. Volunteer for an organization that does it. Buy the supplies you need to do it. The important thing is taking action because that gets you to step three, which is simply to persist. And that's the most difficult step for just about everyone. Once you decide to take action, eliminate the option not to. Commit to sticking with it for at least 90 days. Don't stop when you get frustrated or fail because you probably will. Everyone does it first. Those who become good at something are simply those who are okay with being bad at it, at least for a while. If after 90 days you realize this really wasn't your passion, then you've learned something valuable about yourself, and it's time to go back to step one and try something new. And don't think of this process as work or failure. It's fun. It's life. It's learning. It's engaging with passionate people, and sooner or later, you will find your passion one of the most important things to your active longevity. Great, great stuff. And I've got a little bit more of great stuff for you. Did you know that Growing Bolder is also a television show on public TV stations across the country. Did you know that Growing Boulder is a quarterly 100-page magazine? That Growing Boulder has a must-see page on Facebook? That Growing Boulder is a life-changing book written by my buddy Mark Middleton? Learn more about it and find more inspiring interviews, videos, memes, merchandise, and motivation at growingbolder.com. And here's why Growing Boulder is making such an impact on so many. Because we're disrupting the ageist propaganda machine that makes us all fear aging, that leads us to believe the demeaning and devastating stereotypes. And if your mind believes it, so will your body. So here's the deal. Growing older is a blessing. It's a gift. Everybody gets to be young. Only the fortunate get to grow old. So let's stop focusing only on loss and start celebrating opportunity. Let's squeeze every bit of love and joy and excitement and adventure out of every day because that's Growing Boulder. We'll see you next time. The Growing Boulder radio show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.